It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lutie. Well, good morning, everyone. Rumor has it that we're going to be shifting uh, to Studio 29 starting tomorrow for our... Uh, that's, that's a hope. That's a hope. Okay, so it's not a, a, a firm, firm thing. We've been trying to do that for three weeks, so uh, it'll be a little different background. For any of you that are streaming, uh, that's going to be a little shift, uh, which will be fun. Uh, a visual, it's like visual candy, you know, to be able to see something from a different angle. But, uh, so we're in a, a series called Heroic Tales, and what we're going through, just different heroes of the faith uh, in Scripture and uh, illustrating some different attributes from their lives and then drawing it into ours. Because the Bible isn't meant to just be this great story that is epic and inspiring. It's meant to actually be usable, transferable to us so that we see the behavior of God in men. We see faith in action and then we follow suit. We recognize, okay, this is what it looks like, and then we begin to animate the same faith. So this one's called Bold Entrance, and our hero today is a woman, uh, Esther, and we could say Esther the Queen, but I'm going to emphasize very specifically Esther the Jewess, uh, which was not an easy thing to be in the midst of this drama that she was in, and uh, she was a Jew. And just because most people didn't seem to recognize it at the time didn't change the fact that her life was in jeopardy. And the way she handles her situation in the book of Esther, the book of Esther is truly an extraordinary book. Uh, and it's, it's always ranked as, as one of my favorite stories. It's an incredible uh, Christophany and a picture of uh, Christ's behavior on our behalf. But I'm going to call her the woman of gutsy grace because we're going to be focusing on the power of grace this morning and how she exhibits something very specific. So Esther 4, we have a, a crisis uh, for the Jewish people uh, that if you, if you remember Haman, he's the bad guy. He's a descendant of uh, Agag, who is a descendant of Esau. So if, if you remember that uh, Samuel the prophet uh, kills the king of the Amalekites and cuts off his head, his name was Agag. And so we have an Agagite here in Haman. And the Amalekites and the Agagites have always stood directly opposed to the Jews. And so once again, you're going to see that. So it's like a, second, a first and a second. You have Mordecai and you have Haman. You have this contrast that is being created. And the first is desirous to see uh, truth win out. The second is desirous to see truth quashed. And so... Morde- or I'm sorry, Haman has done his devilish work behind the scenes and gotten the king, Asaharis, to actually sign into decree, which back in the day when a decree was made, it's like a big deal. And so it's just like, it's a done deal. And so now all the Jews are going to basically be wiped out. And Mordecai has just informed Esther of this and basically has said, you need to go into the king and petition him. And so what we have is a... Uh, response back to Mordecai. They can't speak directly to each other, but through a messenger. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know 
that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who were present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. There's multiple things that are coming to the surface in a story like this. I mean, first of all, the the desperation of the situation, just to see God's providence in it. And that's one of the key things that Esther is going to demonstrate is the providence of God. That in history, many times have the Jews been attempted to be wiped out, okay? I mean, you could think even in the present tense of Hitler and what he has attempted to do. But this, is a, this has been a constant refrain uh, throughout history. And what you see is that God has always supplied a lamb, if you want to say it that way. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so even when the knife is raised, it's, there, there is the supply, there is the provision. And so in this situation, I, one of the fascinating lines is, even if you do nothing, Esther, God will still bring about a deliverance. That's a really fascinating thought. In other words, that here she has been positioned, it's obvious to Mordecai that she has been pos- positioned for such a time as this. That in the midst of such harrowing circumstances, guess what? The queen just happens to be a Jew and has favor in the king's eyes. So, uh, Esther, you need to do something with your position. You see, each of us has been equipped in a very unique way with a position in this generation. It's interesting because we live in a darkened age where truth has fallen in the streets and it seems that judgment is turned away backwards. And so we have a great need in our generation. You could look around and go, well, who's going to... Who's going to do something about it? It's the same thing you could say back in Shushan, back in in this exact crisis. Like, what are we supposed to do? And then you realize the voice of Mordecai comes to you afresh throughout all these generations and says, could it be that you have been positioned right where you're at for such a time as this? Why is it that you know what you know? Why is it that you are at the age you're at? Why is it that you have been positioned with a tongue, a body that is healthy to be able to do something right here, right now. There are people that were strong people in the past that have passed away. They're not here. They're not God's chosen vehicle for such a time as this. But you are. You see, you didn't live back in Esther's day. This wasn't your issue. Your issue is today. And so when that voice of Mordecai comes uh, cascading down through the generations to us, it says, you know, look, deliverance is going to come one way or the other. You know, even if you keep silent and you do nothing, God will still get his ends. However, could it be that you were positioned in this generation to know what you know, to be healthy and strong the way you are right now, with a working tongue, to be able to do something right here, right now? So that's the same Esther quagmire, the Esther dilemma. When she hears those words from Mordecai, she responds. The question is, what do you do? 
she recognized, and this is a parallel with the Passover and what we, we see of the three days, three nights uh, with Jesus in the grave, and then we see a resurrection, we see a victory. We're going to see, I mean, it's interesting, Haman, even the enemy, the symbol of the flesh, is going to be hung on a tree. The very instrument that he is going to build to kill Mordecai on, guess what? He ends up dying upon. Doesn't that sound like the cross? The very thing that was designed by the devil to crucify Jesus ends up destroying the flesh. It destroys the power of sin. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's like, talk about a conversion, a turn of events. God is in control. God will accomplish his ends. Even if it looks like the devil has the upper hand, God will accomplish his ends. The question for us today is how are we going to appropriate our role in this? For whatever reason, God has chosen us. And I know that's preposterous at a certain level. It's like, why would he choose us? Why would he look down from heaven and pick little old us to participate in this grand drama, to be the chief means that he has chosen to reveal his glory? He has chosen the church. Now, there's so many other ways that he could do it. I mean, if we were to just brainstorm some other options, I mean, we could come up with better options than to, work, to use weak humanity that seems to always have a bent towards selfishness and a bent towards disobedience. It's like, why use them? It'd be easier to fill golden retrievers with the Holy Spirit and to use them than it would be us. Because at least they can be obedient and they're lovable and cuttable and, you know, they wag their tail. They do everything a lot better than we do, right? Have you ever heard it said that some people would rather just spend their life with dogs than with humans? And it's because dogs are a bit more pleasant. We're a complicated race, we hum humans. And yet God has said, my seal of love is upon them. Not upon the golden retriever. I don't think that means God doesn't like golden retrievers. He made them, and he probably enjoys them just like we do. But he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for humans. And he has chosen us to be his vehicles of revelation. So for such a time as this, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has supplied us his Holy Spirit so that we could live and we could boldly do what he has asked us to do. So the comfort zone versus the awkward zone. If I were to just lay those two before you and say, which do you prefer? Well, without any discussion, I already know the answer to that. We all, in a native state, prefer the comfort zone. We prefer, prefer that first circumstance in our life. We crave it, in fact. We desire comfort. And so you'll notice that most of your designs and dreams in life are to find more comfort. It's to find, you know, if you're going to be educated, why are you being educated? Well, so that you can get a good degree, so you can get a high-paying job, so that you can be comfortable. I mean, comfort is a native desire that we have. There's nothing wrong with the desire for comfort. It's that it can't rule you. In other words, there's nothing bad about having a home that doesn't leak and doesn't have drafts in it, as if God's like, oh, that's unspiritual. It's, it's not that comfort itself is the great enemy of our soul. It's that we cannot crave comfort over obedience. And so oftentimes there are circumstances in life where to be obedient, we have to leave comfort behind. And that's what it means to pick up a cross and follow. I mean, can you get a better description of giving up comfort than to pick up a wooden cross, which is an execution device, which when you hang on it, kills you. Gets every bone out of joint in your body. It leads to extreme pain. And so God's saying, yeah, pick up that. 
Well, we're going to call that the awkward zone. It's that zone of difficulty that we all instinctively will avoid. If you've ever studied uh, fear and the things that people fear the most, uh, it's, it's really an odd thing. And I don't even know that I believe it. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if it's uh, public speaking teachers that came up with this poll because usually at the start of a public speaking class, they'll announce that uh, the two greatest fears in life are the fear of pain and death and the fear of public speaking. And oftentimes people will, will put the fear of public speaking higher than the fear of pain and death. <laughs> okay, now that's why I say it. To me, that, that seems like it's probably a public speaking coach type of thing where they're trying to make a point and look, you can overcome this. Because it's a lot easier to overcome the fear of public speaking than it is the fear of pain and death, in my mind, okay? Now, I, here, I, I'm a public speaker that's, that's saying that, and I, I spend almost my entire life speaking publicly, and to me, it's not that jarring and scary. So as a result, that maybe that's why I don't believe this. However, for whatever reason, throughout history, public speaking has always ranked near the top. Now, whether you put it above or below the fear of pain and death, it's the fear of being exposed publicly, being laughed at and ridiculed publicly, because that's what the fear of public speaking is. It's that you're going to make a mistake in front of people. It's not the, the fear that you're going to sound intelligent and you're going to say something that wows the crowd. That's not the fear. It's the fear that you will do the opposite. It's the fear that you will be rejected. It's the fear that what you say will not come across well, that you'll stumble, that your tongue will get thick in your mouth and your brain will go empty at the, at the wrong moment, right? And so this is why we oftentimes fear, and I'm going to call it the awkward zone. Now, we can call pain and death the awkward zone too, if that helps, to recognize that there's a comfort zone and then there's all that is not in that comfort zone. And we'll put all of that in the awkward zone. Okay, and it's interesting because in Christianity, where do you think God is calling us? He's calling us out of a comfort zone into something different, into Christ. And by the way, if you watch Christ's life, just read his life, you recognize that it's not that easy. And then you read Paul the Apostle's life, and you recognize, woo, you read all about the apostles and what grand adventures they went on. Then we pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs, and we read throughout Christian history, and we recognize that to follow Christ means to get out of a comfort zone. It means to do things like Esther did, day in and day out. And it takes something beyond what we natively have. If you dig in your own pockets for what it takes to live out what I'm saying right now, you're going to find that it's not there. So do you have in your own pockets that which you need to live boldly for Jesus Christ? No, you don't. It's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that. But here's the follow-up question. Do you have that which you need to boldly live for Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. Isn't it funny that we would say no to the first one? Do you have that which you need to boldly live for Jesus Christ? No, not natively, not in our own possession, not in our own pockets, but we do have it. How do we have it? By faith. Faith in his word, or as Paul will say it in scripture, we have it in Christ. Positionally, we have everything that is required for life and for godliness, and godliness would be God behavior. So how would God behave in this body? You have everything you need to do that. That's an incredible statement. You have everything you need for God behavior. That means there is no excuse for falling short of God behavior. Now, that's, I'm not saying we won't fall short, but I'm saying there is no excuse for it. In other words, you recognize it's like, God, increase within me. You know where to go to get it. So when you fall short, 
Don't just accept that. Just keep pressing and saying, God, increase. Grow up within me. Mature me into your likeness. The ancient Waldensian training method. So the Waldensians would be the Christians that lived during what we would understand as the Dark Ages when it seemed that the light of truth went out. And so there was still a church back in those days. However, it had become corrupted. And in fact, the church was oftentimes hunting down those that would dare to go into uh, the highways and byways and share the gospel, and they would kill them. So that's a weird church, don't you think? And that's what had happened. The Catholic church had gone corrupt at this time, and the Waldensians were the carriers of the scriptures. So as a result, they hid in caves in the Italian Alps. I mean, their stories are just extraordinary. For hundreds of years, they kept the scriptures, and they would go out in twos into all of Europe to actually share the gospel. But they did it not as evangelists, because then they would get killed. They did it as traders, as merchants. And so they would come to houses, and they would literally, they would trade goods. But they would be praying the whole time, asking God if this was someone who was trustworthy, where they could entrust the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And if they sensed that the Spirit of God was nudging them to give the gospel, then they would risk their life to share it. And they would talk about that, the fact that they had something of even greater value. And it was a pearl of great price. And they would begin to describe this beautiful pearl. And if there was interest, they would continue. And ultimately, they would present Jesus, the gospel. And they would invite someone to lay down their life and give up everything they know to be uh, you know, their comfort to come and follow. And could you imagine, you know how many of these traders, these merchants, were literally killed with gruesome deaths because they were willing to go into uh, towns and speak this truth? So when I read their stories, I can't help but put myself into it and say, okay, how, how's Eric doing here? Because Eric lives in a culture, as do you, where it is not illegal to go up to someone and share the gospel. It is not illegal. It's frowned upon. Don't get me wrong. It is culturally wrong and inappropriate to do it. We all feel that, okay? But it's not illegal. In other words, I will not be thrown into jail, even though I have heard of Christians being thrown into jail for sharing the gospel. Usually it's because they were uh, actually disturbing the peace is, is usually what happens. Like people start throwing stuff at them, and then they're shouting over the crowd, and they're, quote-unquote, disturbing the peace, and they end up in jail. So that can happen, okay, I, granted. But for the most part, the, the concept of sharing the, the gospel is not what's illegal. And so I live in a culture, as do you, where it is not illegal, and yet these guys, the Waldensians, are more bold than I am, or were more bold than I am. And that disturbs me at a certain level. Okay, it's like, wait a minute here. <laughs> Why? I don't want to be outpaced by the ancient Waldensians. These guys were risking life and limb to share the gospel, but they were so burdened to do it. So this is how they did it, by the way, because I, I get it. I understand the dynamic, and that's why this became such a huge point to me. When I was studying the Waldensians, they, had, they went out in twos, and one was an older man. He was known as a barb. My mom's name is Barb, so it's always been sort of awkward uh, to think of, but they were barbs. And then they had a young man, which would be you know, probably late teens, early 20s, that would go with them. Now, the older man had grown up under an older man in his day, when he was young. And so the key is, the older man is used to this. He is familiar with violating 
his comfort zone and stepping into the awkward zone. The young man isn't because natively speaking, in our natural state, we don't do things like this. We're not stupid. I'm not about to just set my head on a chopping block and say, yes, please cut it off. I'm not going to do that. And yet the Spirit of God would fill these young men and they would be moved to say, I want to go. I want to go share the gospel. And so they'd be assigned a barb. And this barb was familiar. And there's something that would always happen when they'd come to the edge of a town. There's a threshold that they would need to cross. Just sort of that beginnings of a town. And that young man would suddenly just like freeze up of recognizing what he's headed into. You guys have felt this before, I'm sure. Where you head out to do something, even boldly, it's like, I wanna, I wanna start speaking about Jesus to people. And then you get the opportunity and suddenly you go on lockdown. It's like, what is that? It's the same thing that happens in public speaking, by the way. It's like, okay, I wanna get better at public speaking. Then you get up there and your brain goes empty. It's like, what's going on? Your tongue feels like a felt eraser in your mouth. <laughs> So what's going on? It's that weird, it's an unfamiliarity with the awkward zone, okay? You're not used to this zone. And so when you come into this zone, it's the same as like going into a foreign country. Have you ever been into a foreign country? And when you first come in, you feel like fish out of water. They're speaking a different language. You're looking around. You don't know how to talk to someone. You just need to find your, your suitcase, okay? That's all you want. You just want your suitcase. You need to use the restroom too. And now you don't know, you can't remember any of the words you studied. And so someone's standing there like, and you're like, bathroom, restroom, um, suitcase. And they're like, and you have no idea how to communicate. And it causes a certain panic inside of you. Well, welcome to public speaking. You are entering into a theater that is unfamiliar. And because it is unfamiliar, you tend to get tense, anxious, Okay, when I, see, I speak all the time, so it's, I'm very used to speaking in front of large crowds even, and it doesn't create any of that drama in me. However, whenever I've gone into a new type of speaking environment that I'm not familiar with, like for instance, uh, I was on a national radio show live, and the moment I got on that, that show, and I remember thinking, like, we're live. Uh, well, welcome, uh, Eric Ludi, to this show, and just want you to know that we have an entire nation listening in right now. And I tell you what, it was weird, but my brain was starting to fog over, my tongue felt thick in my mouth, and I, was just, I felt like I was a first-time public speaker. Why? Because it was new territory. I remember this one time I came out, and I was speaking in this uh, Christian college, and they, I think it was televised, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was like this, but they had this regimented schedule that when you see the countdown, it'll, it'll start at 10 seconds, and when it gets down to zero, you need to be done with your, your message. So you have exactly 27 minutes and 30 seconds. You know, it was one of those types of things. And it's like, okay. And so I get into that situation, well, I'm used to speaking, but I'm not used to speaking with a clock there. And then it starts going doo, 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 when it gets down to 10 seconds. Sort of like, shut up, Eric, it's time to close off your message. Well, that's not what I'm used to. So as a result, I was tense. My brain wasn't very clear. My words were stumbling. Why? Well, I'm in a new territory. Now, what happens when you get familiar with this territory? What happens when this new awkward zone becomes familiar to you? Well, guess what? You become strong in it. This is what doesn't happen for most of us. The reason is, is we're used to the comfort zone, and we put our toe in the awkward zone. And maybe we come over for a few seconds, and then we jump back. We're like, oh, oh, oh. It's like that cold pool, you know, where we, we dip our leg in, like, ah, oh, no, oh, ah, and then we come back and we suntan for a while. 
And then we like get up and maybe we dip our toe. It's like, oh, 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 and then we come back. It's like, oh, I can't go in there. And so as a result, we never acclimate. Every time we come back, it's new. It, we never have actually broken through that barrier. So the barb, I'm going back to the Waldensians, the barb would take the young man by the hand and say, follow me. You see, he knew what it was like to be bold. The young man didn't. So he would carry him into the uncomfortable territory. He would take the lead. What are we missing in this generation? That. You see, it's up to us. We're the young guys standing at the threshold and we feel the weight of the word of God saying, go in and pour out your life. We're like, God, why is this so hard? We have not had the heritage, the pass off from generation to generation of the barb who takes us by the hand and walks us across the threshold. And I remember reading this back in the day when I was young 20s and going, God, that's what I crave. I prayed five straight years for a father of the faith every day that God would give me someone to pull me across that threshold because I craved it, I desired it, but I felt the weakness in me. And I felt like God's answer was, Eric, I'm going to have to train you the hard way, but if you're willing, I would like to make you one who will reach down and grab someone else's hand and carry them across. Whew, and it, I have to admit, it hasn't been the easiest way of learning. Back in uh, the early Christian era, when uh, the Christians were being fed to wild beasts, that would be an interesting motivator uh, for you to stay silent, because sometimes all you need to do is keep your mouth shut, and you can avoid being fed to wild beasts. You know, there's, there's some bad endings, different ways that we could go out of this world, but being fed to a hungry beast has to rank up there pretty high, especially when it's in front of a cheering crowd, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like the way that I would choose. If I had a few options in front of me, you know, it's like fall you know, asleep and die in, in the night. You know, maybe this one, which is to be, you know, in a plane wreck, and it's just, you go out quick. And this one, be fed to wild beasts. You know, it's like I give you all the choice. It's funny, but we're all going to lean a little towards that die in the sleep model, it falls into the comfort zone for us. Not that any of us are wanting to die, don't get me wrong. It's just that if we had to choose, we're probably leaning that direction. So back in the early Christian era, one of the stories, I wish I could source this because I just remember it from, we're talking 28 years ago, uh, that these young Christians were in the cell with these older Christians and they were going to be fed to the wild beasts and they were trembling because all they had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. That's all they needed to do, and they would be set free. And they were really struggling with this because I mean, the, the beasts were hungry. They were in a cage nearby. You, know, you could just sort of feel the tension in the air. And the older saints, recognizing the weakness of the younger, at least one of them, I don't know if all of them said this, but it's like, young ones, we want you to know, we will go first. Watch us face the lions, and you'll be able to follow. And the, the older ones walk out, hands raised, singing songs with total calm and confidence in Jesus Christ. And the younger ones are suddenly vying for position to go next. You see, this is, I don't know if you're noticing what we're missing as a generation. We're missing the older ones that say, watch me. So as a result, we're, we're like, ha, how does this work? And that's okay, but we're the generation that maybe has to do it the hard way. And if you're open, God is going to train us in this, but we still need to be willing. We still need to be willing to take those steps forward and trust that God will supply us the grace. 
the threshold of obedience. That's what I've always called it, that there is a threshold in our life where we have a tendency to stop. We'll go this far, but then when we get to it, we feel the commission of God to keep going, but we, we have that inner panic. We have that inner uh, failure of brain, failure of tongue, where we suddenly just lock up. And so I, I've had this so many times. Bourbon Street is sort of the famous story in my life for it, where it was, I was down on a missionary team uh, in New Orleans, and it was right before Mardi Gras. So Mardi Gras, this was like, I want to say the day before Mardi Gras was going to start. And so our team decided that they wanted to go evangelize on Bourbon Street. And I was still at that time, and I don't like to acknowledge this, but it's true. I was still somewhat of a cool Christian at that time. In other words, I hadn't fully let go of my identity uh, it, because I could, the, the group I was with was not cool. I don't know if you've ever felt that type of a thing where you know what cool is, you can esteem cool, and you sense that God's sort of saying, are you willing to group yourself with the uncool? It's like, ah! And so I was, I was in that, the throes of that challenge and that difficulty, and the group wanted to go evangelize. Well, I can think of nothing more uncool than to go evangelize on Bourbon Street, but it was more than that. It was the fact that they wanted to take these, this huge cross and bring it and stand it in the middle of Bourbon Street, okay? And I, I mean, it's just like, this is not going to go over well, guys. That, that's what's going through my head. It's like, that is just a bad idea. There's something embarrassing about the cross. Have you ever thought that through? There's something about it that is just, you know, it's not cool. It just isn't. And so I remember them asking if I would go, and I could tell that they were all sort of conspiring together in the side, like whispering, like, we need to get Ludi to go. Uh, Ludi needs this. And I, I did not want to go. I had, I, it was spiritualizing. It's like, I feel like God wants me to stay here and study. Uh, and they, they said, well, Eric, we just want you, could you pray about it? Uh, and just to see if God wants you to go. I didn't want to pray about it because you could just already sense when someone says that what God's going to say. Of course you know God wants you to go to Bourbon Street and stand by a cross. And I did not want to go, but I, I did end up going. Okay, long and short, otherwise it's not going to be a very good story. And so I am headed there, and I recognize, even as we were way to park way, way out there uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, and walk with these beams of wood, and I found myself walking a good 20 feet away from the people carrying the wood, it was just embarrassing. I mean, they're carrying beams of wood. Who does that? And so I found myself ashamed, which God was sort of pointing at. It's like, what's going on there, Eric? Oh, God, this is really hard. I mean, it was, it was touching something in me. It was, I'm used to the comfort zone, and, and so that's where I would always say, I believe in relational evangelism. That's the classic way of saying, you know, that I don't believe in getting out of my comfort zone into the awkward zone. I believe in relational evangelism. In other words, whatever is normal and natural, whatever just flows freely, I don't want to ever have to say something that would make someone uncomfortable. I don't want to ever have to be bold and blunt. I want to be easygoing. I, I just want to be, you know, cool about my Christianity. Well, this wasn't cool. So we get to Bourbon Street, and they're trying to set up the cross in the middle of the, of the, the morass of people. And... So I'm standing, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 feet away, just sort of standing, bouncing on my toes, like, God, you know, why don't you, you know, I'm here for you, <laughs> hiding under, like, some kind of covering off to the side, as far away from that group as I could get. And they, they were a whole bunch of short people in this group. And not that I'm tall, but 
I was taller than all of them, and they could not get the top beam in. So they're looking around like, where's Ludi? There I am, way over there in the shadows. And they're like, hey, Ludi. And I'm like, ah. They're like calling me out while they're standing there with the cross. And I'm like, ah. And could you help us? So I had to come over there. I mean, could you imagine? I had to stick my hand on the top beam and fix it into place and then run a scamper off again real quick. So I was being so deeply convicted over the fact that I was ashamed by this, right? I didn't want to be ashamed. This is a key moment in my life. I didn't want to be ashamed, but I was ashamed. Okay, God, I, I, don't, I don't like what, what I'm seeing inside of me. In other words, it was just drawing it to the surface. God, I, I want to stand for you. I do, but do I have to stand with a cross for that to happen? So a key moment in my life, I'd been standing in the shadows, you know, bouncing on my toes saying, God, bring someone to me for quite a while. I don't know what it had been, about a half hour. And one of the team members comes over and says, hey, uh, we were wondering if you would be willing to hold the cross. Now, what do you think Eric's going to say in a situation like this? With all that I've told you about Eric so far, you're going to say, Eric's going to say, no way. You know what I said? Okay. And it shocked me. It's like, what just came out of my mouth? You see, I was praying, God, enable me to do this. I, I recognize that in and of myself, I do not have the ability to stand for you. But I don't want to try and do this in my own strength. You take over the life of Eric Ludi. You do this in and through me. Next thing you know, I'm saying okay to that. And I'm like walking over there to the cross. And get this, putting my arm around it in the middle of Bourbon Street with a mass of people there that are drunk and that are making fun of this cross, mocking it, yelling at it. And I have never felt so much joy in my entire life as when I stood there with that cross. I stood there for, oh, it was like three hours. And I was the happiest man on earth. And I, it's, it'd be really hard to argue that I had a smile that was creasing my face that hurt. Have you ever smiled so hard that it hurts? My smile was hurting me. I was actually laughing out loud. I was so joy-filled. As I'm saying, there are people who are throwing beer on me. They're cursing me. They're threatening to kill me. All these things. And I'm just loving it. And I, I recognized for the first time what happens when you boldly step across and enter the awkward zone. What do you find? You find grace. You see, there's no grace over here. We all want grace. Grace is found over here. Grace is found for when you need it, and you need it here. You don't need it to be in the comfort zone. This is not a place of grace, but this is, and grace is stupendous. So the principle of the awkward zone. Grace is supplied when in the awkward zone. I mean, it just makes sense. You need grace for help in time of need. And if the comfort zone is to remove all need, you don't have need in the comfort zone. That's why it's comfortable. But when you have need, you need grace. And that's when you find grace. Grace is not supplied for the comfort zone. That's a fact. So just like God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, God does not give grace to the comfortable. He gives grace to the uncomfortable. He gives grace to the obedient. He gives grace to the bold. He gives grace to those that are willing to put their arm around the cross. He gives grace to those that are willing to get uncomfortable and speak. He gives grace when we obey. 
And so for many of us, we're like, God, could you give me the grace before I obey? That's what we want. Doesn't that make sense? It's like, God, you give me the grace. So when I'm in the comfort zone, I'm like, ah, bold as a lion. And then you cross over into the awkward zone. You're like, ah, instead it doesn't work that way. You're weak in the, in the comfort zone. And you're looking over at the awkward zone going, oh, I can't do that. So what do you have to do? Weakly, you have to step across. And when you weakly step across, his lion-like nature meets you. But you have to accept the fact that you're a weak vehicle. It's okay. That's why Paul's always rejoicing in his weakness. Because in his weakness, he is going to showcase the strength of God. Grace to go into the awkward zone. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Another way of saying this, you'll be brought into the awkward zone for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the spirit of your Father which speaks in you. Well, that's such an odd scripture that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. In other words, when you get into this awkward zone, don't worry about it ahead of time because you won't have it ahead of time what you will need to speak. You know how we would be? It's like, okay, if I'm going to stand before a king, I need to know what I'm going to say. If I'm ever going to be in that situation where I'm going to share the gospel, I need to have it all figured out ahead of time. Well, I'm not going to argue the fact that we should be prepared in our life, that we should study in our life, that we should understand the gospel in our life, that we should know how to share the gospel. I'm not against that. However, there's a theme or a, a proof or a truth here and that is that when you are in the comfort zone, you do not yet have the grace required for what you're going to need when you're in the awkward zone. So you need to trust that when you get into this zone, you will have everything you need to do precisely what God wants you to do. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. So over here, don't stress about the fact that when you get into the awkward zone, you're going to be empty and you won't have anything in your ability to share and your brain will go numb on you. No, trust that actually the opposite's going to happen. That if you are doing this for Christ's sake, he will supply you everything you need over here in the awkward zone. There are moments that change our lives and define who we are. You know what those moments are? They are all in the awkward zone. You want to, you go through your life so far of the key moments that have most defined you, they're the ones where you step out and get uncomfortable and you're like, what am I doing? I can't believe I'm doing this. And those are the moments that change you. You see, we are all craving change. We're craving to grow and to move forward, but we want God to grow us up in the comfort zone as opposed to recognizing that it's actually over here in the awkward zone that God does his growing. And so, I mean, in my life, I can define throughout, and I'm not going to go through these stories, but those of you that are familiar with Ellerslie and the Ellerslie training know the stories, uh, and that is like Monroe, Louisiana. When I am willing to stand up and speak something, I know the audience doesn't want to hear. This is actually a defining moment in my spiritual development. Back when I was, oh, I don't know, 20 or so, the sleeper car, a key defining moment in my life. It was uncomfortable, it was awkward, it was difficult, and guess what? It defines me, my marriage, 
my course, my ministry. It's these moments when you are willing to say, I'm not just going to do what's easy. I'm going to do what God is asking of me. And when you do that, it's incredible, but his grace unlocks in your life. Mount Horeb. These are all symbols in my life of saying, yes, Lord. Bourbon Street, a classic illustration to my soul because I tasted something. I did not want to let go of the cross. Someone after midnight, you know, one of my team members at like one in the morning comes up to me and says, hey, Eric, can I hold the cross now? And I'm thinking, get your own cross. This is my cross. I was actually, I was feeling that. It's like, excuse me, but I've never experienced anything like this. I want this to go on forever. Isn't that an amazing thought that I'm in the middle of decadence and darkness and mockery and I've never been happier. I tasted that. In fact, I wanted to go home and build myself a cross and walk all over the place with this thing. And what happens? The next day I wake up and I go back into my comfort zone and I look over there at the awkward zone. I'm like, oh, what did I do? What was wrong with me yesterday? You see, I didn't acclimate. You need to become acclimated over here in the awkward zone as opposed to dip your toe in and then come back the next day. And so that's what I begin to recognize in my life is that, wow, I recognize the grace that is present here, but I also know how quickly I can return to my old manner and my old thinking patterns. But God, oh, I want to live with that cross. I want to live boldly before my generation. I want to live where the grace is. That's what I want to be doing. So we're going to finish with this. It is not you that speak but the spirit of your father which speaks in you. So this is in that context of Jesus saying, look, when you stand before kings and governors, I'm gonna supply you everything you need. For us, the issue isn't us standing before kings and governors, it's us being willing to do what God is leading us to do in this generation. How do you know that you've not been chosen for such a time as this, just as Esther was? And Esther needed something profound to carry her across that threshold into the presence of King Asuherus, knowing that it's likely going to be her life. Now, praise God that the king extended the golden scepter to her, but that's sort of like what our king does to us. He extends the grace to us. We risk everything, and he extends the grace to us. And we have greater strength than ever before. So for each of us, depending on where you're at in your life, for us to recognize it doesn't matter if you're a timid, shy person or if you're a bold, loud person. Personality isn't the issue here. It's willingness and obedience because you could have a bold personality and not have grace to do this. You need grace to live in the awkward zone, to do life in the awkward zone, to be able to present Jesus to a generation that doesn't want to hear about him. That's not easy. Well, but God has given us everything we need to be able to do it. Father, we as the body of Christ submit to you and just ask that you would acquaint us with this awkward zone, that we would become familiar, acclimated, with the grace of God to be able to do hard things, to be able to do difficult things, things that the world would look at and laugh and say, yeah, I would never catch me doing that. Lord, may we be caught doing it. Lord, I pray that you would increase in boldness in us. 
that you would increase in strength in us, that you would grow up stronger, mature us taller in our spiritual stature. Lord, may our mouths be ready to speak even today to those around us that are in need of life and truth and hope. It's in the precious name we pray. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.